Well, have you ever thought about how our society handles encouragement? How do we encourage others? Most of the time, it comes in the form of a card. If you go to the supermarket or to the drugstore, you'll usually see row after row of cards, and there's always a section titled Encouragement. If you pick up one of these cards, they always have a some short, pithy saying that's meant to encourage, but when you read it, it's usually way too corny to ever take seriously. For example, here are a couple, I think, real ones. When you come to the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on. A diamond is merely a lump of coal that did well under pressure. Go for the moon. If you don't get it, you'll still be heading for a star. When everything seems to be going against you, remember that the airplane takes off against the wind, not with it. And every life is a story. Make yours a bestseller. I don't know about you, but if I'm sitting in the hospital trying to recover, it doesn't really encourage me to be told every life is a bestseller or every life is a story, make yours a bestseller. It just doesn't work, for me at least. I don't know about you. But these encouragement cards are just about the least amount of effort you can put into trying to encourage someone else. Just send them a quick card. When you're going through a hard time or when you're suffering, you may get a few of these encouragement cards yourself, but pretty much the only encouragement you derive from them is expressed by the saying, well, it's the thought that counts. That's about it. When you're really going through a valley in life, you're not clinging to some random card that you got that a friend signed. Unless, however, someone takes the time to really write something meaningful in it. I think we all know this. It's going to be extremely hard to do. And what do you say to someone who is suffering? How do you encourage them? It can be very difficult to find the right words to say that's not going to actually discourage them or open a sore wound. It can be very difficult to find the right words that are encouraging. For instance, my cousin just lost her husband to cancer. And then a couple weeks later, she lost her mother to cancer. What do you say to that? What do you say to a person who's going through that kind of suffering? Sometimes you might think it's best to say nothing at all. That's what Job's friends did at first. For the first seven days after his suffering, they didn't say anything. They just sat there with him, grieving with him, and that was the best thing they did. It was when they opened their mouths that they started to actually discourage Job. That being said, if you can be careful and thoughtful and skillful, you can craft an encouraging letter to someone that can really make the difference. If you can find just the right words, an encouraging letter can help someone endure a difficult time. This morning we are beginning our study of 1 Peter. And let me just say that this is an encouraging letter. The Apostle Peter is writing to Christians who are suffering. and He's not simply send them a trite card with a pithy saying, Instead, he finds just the right words to both truly encourage and instruct those who are going through a difficult time. And though we may not have the skill or the grace to write such a letter ourselves, that's not going to stop us from tapping into what Peter has said and finding encouragement. Indeed, going beyond a simple letter of encouragement, this first epistle of Peter is God's letter about suffering. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, these are God's words of counsel to his people, and therefore we know they're going to be like medicine to the soul. Last week we sketched a biography of Peter himself, and I would encourage you to download that message if you missed it, because 
Knowing Peter means knowing first Peter. But today we want to actually get into the text, start moving through the text itself. So if you haven't already, make your way over to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be looking at the first two verses. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. In one sense, this is a very typical, ordinary, ancient letter introduction. The three common elements, you found them all over the place, the author, the audience, and a greeting. Let's start with the author, Peter. He says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we had a great time exploring the life of this man, Peter, last week. He was one of the 12 apostles, the leader of the 12, really. Originally, his name was Simon, but Christ gave him a new name, Peter, which means rock. Which is strange at first, because he behaved nothing like a rock during Christ's earthly ministry. He was the first to fear, the first to deny, the first to doubt. But that all changed after Peter was restored by his Savior and empowered by the Spirit. In the time after Pentecost, he really started living up to his name as Peter, the rock. And along with James and John, he formed a pillar of the early church, helping to lay the foundation. And through his sermons and acts, as well as First and Second Peter, we can see why. He identifies himself here as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the word apostle simply means one who is sent, like a delegate or a messenger. However, the word came to be a technical term for one of those specially chosen by Christ to represent Christ. The apostles had a special authority that was at least equal to the Old Testament prophets being able to speak and write down the word of God. They were God's messengers used to help lay the foundation of the church and write God's words for the people. That covers the author, Peter. Who then is the audience? Who's he writing to? Well, he says in verse 1, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. First off, Peter is talking to people who are scattered And this word translated scattered in the NASB is diaspora in the Greek, from which we get the word dispersion. In fact, your translation may read dispersed or dispersion in verse 1. This word diaspora was used of a farmer just scattering seed on his field, and it came to be used of people who were scattered in a foreign land. Diaspora was used of Jews scattered from Israel in the Old Testament, It was used of Jewish Christians scattered from Jerusalem in the New Testament. And it was used of Christians in general scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And here Peter, using it without the definite article, is likely referring to Christians in general, some Jewish, some Gentile, a mixed audience, scattered throughout the Roman Empire. But he does narrow it down for us, down to those Christians in Asia Minor, That's what he means when he says Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These five names represent four Roman provinces 
that would be modern-day Turkey or modern-day Asia Minor. It's just back then, they didn't have a word for Asia Minor, so they just listed off the provinces. Side note, by the way, you see Asia. That's not talking about the continent of Asia that we know today. Asia was a medium-sized province on the western end of Asia Minor. Now, Peter is writing to Christians in Asia Minor. It's a territory that covers some 300,000 square miles. But here's an interesting observation. What's the first region on the list? Pontus. What's the last one on the list? Bithynia. What if I told you, though, that Pontus and Bithynia are one province, not two? They're one Roman province named Pontus and Bithynia. You might ask, well, why does Peter split them up, put one first, one last? Well, must believe that the order of these regions describes the route to be followed by the bearer of this letter, who is most likely Silvanus or Silas. The order of these regions matches ports and trade routes of the ancient world where a traveler would start in Pontus, which is at the north end of the Black Sea, take a, a large clockwise circle or kind of an oval, and then return back to that same province near Bithynia, but the same province. By taking this route and by writing to these regions, Peter was ensuring that all the major centers of Christian influence in Asia Minor would be reached. And this marks First Peter as what's called an encyclical letter, an encyclical letter, which means that it was meant to be copied and passed around from church to church to church. It's meant to be spread around. So that covers the author, Peter, the audience, Christians in Asia Minor. And there's this last element, the greeting, pretty typical. He says, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. It's mentioned of grace and peace. It's a standard Christian greeting, grace being the source of our blessing, peace being the result of, of our blessing, and he wishes these to be multiplied to his readers. And so, like I said, in one sense, it's a very typical introduction, author, audience, greeting, standard. But in another sense, if you take another look, it's, it's, it's not so typical. Peter could have just kept it short and sweet. He could have just said, Peter, to those scattered in Asia Minor, grace and peace, done, onto the letter. He could have just made a very short intro. But he doesn't. He says more. He says a lot more. He expands this introduction, particularly in the audience section. And so why? Why is he doing this? Why is he expanding this introduction? Well, you have to remember one of the main reasons Peter is writing this letter. Persecution of Christians was ramping up in Rome and elsewhere. But it wasn't super crazy yet. Christians were not being executed for just walking down the street. Really harsh and widespread persecution of Christians would not begin for about 50 years after Peter's writing this letter under Emperor Diocletian. That's when it would get really bad. But that doesn't mean Christians weren't already being persecuted and suffering in Peter's day, because they were. The Jews viewed Christians as heretics. The Gentiles viewed Christians as anti-Rome. And so from either side, they were receiving hatred, persecution. And if you became a Christian, that means you were either leaving behind the Jewish lifestyle or you were leaving behind the Gentile, pagan, Roman lifestyle. And so either way, you're going to be met and greeted with persecution and discrimination by those you left behind. 
Christians lost jobs, friends, family members over their faith. They were marginalized in the existing social structure, and they were persecuted in the existing religious structure. And the pressure against Christians was constant, like waves just constantly battering the coast or a cliff. And some were starting to crumble. That's the thing. Some of these Christians were starting to crumble. Christians were having an increasingly hard time living in a godless world. And that's why Peter writes to them, to encourage them. This whole letter of 1 Peter can be taken as an encouragement for Christians facing difficulty. So why does Peter expand his introduction and say more than he needs to say? It's because already, even in his opening words, he wants to encourage. Right away, he wants to encourage. Like horses bursting out of the gates, Peter immediately gives powerful and timeless encouragements in his opening words. He doesn't want to wait. And his introduction is so rich with encouragement, when you stop and think about it, that if this is any indication of what's to come in the rest of the letter, you know it's going to be a good letter. So today this is what we want to do. Instead of skipping over these first verses, which oftentimes when you read, you just kind of skip over them. They seem oh, insignificant. It's just, just you know, the first introduction. What, what's the big deal? But instead of in, uh, skipping over them, we want to unpack and appreciate Peter's introduction so that we can be blessed even by these opening words. And we'll find they really are a preview of what's to come. So in particular, I want to give you two parts of your identity as Christians so that you may likewise find encouragement. That's where we're going. Two parts of your identity as Christians so that you may likewise find encouragement. The first part of your identity is this, from verse 1, who you are. Verse 1, who you are. I don't always do this, but I've got three sub-points for you here under this first part of your Christian identity. Who you are, number one, you are elect. Number one, you are elect. Let's look again at verse one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. Stop there. Or if you're reading New King James, the word chosen has been moved to verse 2. But Peter is here describing his readers as being chosen. And in the Greek, that's the word eklektos, which means elect, as it is translated in the ESV or the NIV. Peter is writing to those who are chosen or elect. And here we see a reference to the doctrine of election. People always ask, do we choose God? Does God choose us? And if you ask the average man walking down the street, he'll say, well, we choose God. But if you ask what the Bible says, the answer is God chooses us. And perhaps you've heard a lot of the debate surrounding this issue of election. But if you're just going off of what the Bible says, you're not bringing in human reason or emotion, there's really not much of a debate. It's, it's crystal clear. Just as children do not choose to be born the first time, so they do not choose to be born the second time or to be born again. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign in salvation and also that God will has already chosen those whom he will draw to himself. 
All throughout the Bible, God's people are described as a chosen people, not a choosing people. Just down in chapter 2, verse 9 of 1 Peter, he describes us as chosen. All, all throughout the Bible, you are a chosen, not a chooser. Never does the Bible speak about us choosing God apart from his intervention. Not once, not a single time. The doctrine of election whereby God elects some to eternal life, even before the world began, is taught all throughout Scripture. Now I realize, pause for a moment, some of you, you might struggle with this. In your mind you might be asking, what about free will or what about foreknowledge? Isn't it just you know, foreknowledge or isn't election unfair? Doesn't election make God unloving? How can this be true? How can all this stuff be true? It just doesn't seem fair or right. These are all good questions, and they're worth answering. They really are. And originally, I was going to answer them all in this sermon. And so I typed them all up. I finished, actually. But when I was done, I realized I had about 90 minutes worth of material. Seriously. So here's what I decided to do. If you're out there and you really want to know more about this election and predestination versus foreknowledge stuff, then you have to come back next week. I'm going to go ahead and punt. I had to do it. But I'm going to devote almost all of next Sunday's sermon to these issues because they're, they're so important and now I think is a fitting time. So next Sunday, mothers, we love and appreciate you. Happy Mother's Day in advance. But I hope you want to hear about the doctrines of grace because that's what we're going to be covering next Sunday. And in addition to that, if you haven't been with us on Sunday evenings, we're actually just now getting to the doctrine of salvation going through a little mini-series. I guess it's not so many. It's taken a while. But a series on basic Bible doctrine. And now we get to the doctrine of salvation where we're going to cover this stuff in even greater detail. Starting in two Sundays. So if you're out there and you've always wanted to get this stuff down or find out more about all these words like Calvinism and Arminianism, you've always wanted to get to the bottom of it, then now's your time. Stick around the next couple weeks. We're really going to hit this stuff a lot. Hopefully it will bring some clarity to you. But for this morning, I had to show some restraint and just stick to the message of First Peter. And you see, what he's trying to do in this introduction, he's, he's actually not trying to give doctrinal instruction. That's not his goal. His intent in bringing up election is not to teach. He offers no explanation. But rather, it's to encourage. That's why he's bringing it up. It's to encourage. And I want to stick with that for now. He's saying, who are you? First, you are elect. Election is a truth meant for believers. Not that they would boast, but that they would be encouraged. That really is the purpose of the doctrine. And there is surely no room for boasting because God's choice of us had nothing to do with us. We do not earn or deserve anything. But although we do not earn or deserve it, and although we don't know why God chose us, we can nonetheless derive encouragement from the fact. All true believers in Jesus Christ can consider themselves personally chosen by God himself. And how is this encouraging? Well, just think about this. When you're suffering, what are those thoughts that can haunt you at times? For some, they ask, has God forgotten me? Has God abandoned me? But when you remember this first part of your identity, that you are elect, 
The answer should be obvious. No. Of course God has not forgotten you or abandoned you. You are his precious choice, a choice he made before the world began. And do you really think anything can cause that choice to become null and void? Now, why has he let you suffer then, you ask? Well, he has his purposes. They are good purposes, and they will become very clear as we make our way through First Peter. But you just need to stop, remember this first point, and take courage from the fact that you have been chosen. Number one, who you are. You are elect. Number two, though, who you are, you are exiles. Number two, you are exiles. Verse one again, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who are chosen. Here now, Peter addresses his audience as exiles. And it's just one word in the Greek, prepidmos, translated in the NASB, those who reside as aliens or translated pilgrims in the New King James. But here I'm going with the ESV rendering of exiles. And this word is referring to someone who lives as a stranger in a place. You're a sojourner, you're a, a temporary resident, you're a stranger in a foreign land. That's what the word means. There's an ancient writing that reveals how this word was used by an ancient king of Egypt. There's a situation where all these farmers, all these people from the countryside, they were visiting the city of Alexandria. But they became so intoxicated with the luxurious life of the city They didn't want to go back. They didn't want to go back to their country living, their farming, their rural lifestyle. They wanted to stay in the city life. But the king knew if this happened, it would be disastrous for the empire. He needed the farmers farming. They had an empire. They had an army to feed. So he gave a decree ordering that visitors should not sojourn. That's our word. They should not sojourn in Alexandria for more than 20 days. What he was telling them was, You can visit, but you don't live here. You don't belong here. Go back to where you came from. And likewise, for us as Christians, we don't belong here in this world. We are strangers here. Foreigners. Exiles. In the Old Testament, after a while, being an exile became part of Israel's identity. Righteous men like Daniel were taken captive and exiled away from the promised land, which is where they belonged. And and then they spent their days living in a pagan society, entirely opposed to them. And it's the same for us today. Though our exile is not due to our disobedience, nonetheless, we find ourselves living in a godless society with anti-God thinking that pressures us and persecutes us for thinking otherwise. Just like Peter's original audience, we are Christians living in a non-Christian world. And much of what Peter writes is to help us cope with this. And throughout 1 Peter, he's going to instruct us. This is how you maintain a Christian worldview in a non-Christian world. But this is part of our identity. We are exiles on earth. We don't belong. This is not our permanent home. As Philippians 3.20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not our home, and so we should not grow accustomed to this place. Just like Daniel refused to eat like his captors or live like them, 
So we should refuse to acclimate to our godless society. Let's say your, your business forces you to go on a business trip to Mongolia for one month. Because we all know all the new business is taking place in Mongolia. But anyway, you've got to leave your spouse, your kids, your friends, your home behind for a month. So you go to Mongolia. Do you treat it like your new home, though? No, it's temporary. Do you learn the language? No. Do you become a citizen? No. Do you adopt all the customs? No. Do you vote in their elections? No. Do you make new friends and a new family? Bear hope not. But do you instead think about your friends and family back home and you, you can't wait to get back to them? Yes. And this is how Christians should think and behave in the world. We don't live here. We don't belong here. We're not meant to be here permanently. We are, secondly, exiles. Who you are. Number one, you're elect. Number two, you are exiles. Number three now, you are elect exiles. Number three, you are elect exiles. And I say that on purpose. It may sound redundant, but it's not. Because when you put these two together, you get a different understanding. It would be one thing if we were just elect, or if we were just exiles. But it's another thing if we are elect exiles. And it's the, it's the great contrast of our identity in Christ. You see, here, here's how it works. Here we are, and we're elect. We're chosen by God himself, and that's a good thing. God has chosen us for glory, for blessing, for eternal life. He gives us all these promises, but wait a second. We don't have them yet. We're not in glory yet. Here we, here we are. We're still here on earth. We're exiles. We're still in the world. It's because we're exiles, and that is the great contrast of our identity. We're chosen for glory, but not until after we live as exiles. It's very important to understand it. It's taught all throughout Scripture. Just think about it. What's the pattern of Scripture? You must go through the wilderness before you get to the promised land. You must go through the the valley before you get to the mountain. You must go through the cross before you get to the crown. You must go through the suffering before you get get to the glory. As elect, we are made to be like Christ our Savior, but even he had to endure the suffering before the glory. And it is the same with us. We are elect exiles. That's who we are. We're earthbound. We're stuck here on earth for a time, but we're also heavenbound. We're destined for heaven. Remember, once again, Peter describes us like this to encourage us. This is meant to encourage. How does that work? Well, coming to grips with your identity as elect exiles helps you understand your present experiences of suffering and helps you endure them. I'll say that again. Coming to grips with your identity as elect exiles helps you understand your present experiences of suffering and it helps you endure them. You need to know God has chosen you not just to be elect, but also to be an exile. That means that you are right where you're meant to be even in the midst of suffering. This means that even your experiences of suffering are part of God's plan. There are no accidents. 
There are no oversights. God has not dropped the ball. He's not forgotten about you. And all of a sudden you just lapse into suffering. Rather, he has bound you for glory, but you are met right now with a brief time of exile or wandering on earth. But if you meet this time with endurance, you will later be met with blessing that will make all suffering seem like a millisecond. Like I said, though, in the here and now, if you come to really understand and embrace your identity as an elect exile, it can really help you endure. It can provide you the encouragement to help you endure. I spent five years in seminary, three years for the MDiv, two years for the THM, and for many, for most, time in seminary is a time of suffering. I don't say that in a bad way, it's just how it is. The rigors of school, work, family, ministry all at the same time can really put a strain on you. The intense workload, the severe sleep deprivation can really pose quite a trial. For me, though, by God's grace, I was convinced that I was called by God to the ministry. And so understanding that God chose me to be there, I could endure the difficult times. It gave me the encouragement to just do what I had to do and endure the difficult times. But it was different for some of the other guys at seminary, a few of them. I remember meeting a few who they weren't really sure that they should be there. They were just kind of testing things out, giving this a go. And guess what? Most of those guys dropped out. Why? Because when the going got tough, they, they said to themselves, why am I here? Why am I doing this? Why am I suffering like this? What's the point? And finding no good answer, they left. But what is the answer to those questions? You're going through a hard time because God has called you there. And that's just what it takes. That's the answer. That's the conviction that produces endurance regardless of the circumstances. And that same principle applies to you. Now, granted, you may not be called to seminary, but that's not what I'm trying to say. For those who have a true faith in Christ, you have been chosen by God himself. It's by his will that you are elect. It's by his will that you are in exile. God has saved you, but he has for now left you as a, an exile in a hostile world. And according to 2 Timothy 2.13, or excuse me, 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's just a promise for exiles. So why should you suffer? Why should you endure? Because God has chosen you, and glory awaits Christians must understand this first part of their identity as exiles, elect exiles, if they are to rightly comprehend their present experiences of suffering and endure. You must first understand who you are. You are elect exiles. That's the first part of your identity as Christians, meant to encourage you in those difficult times. First part of your identity, who you are, you are elect exiles. Exiles. There's a second part now that we want to get into. A second part of your identity as Christians meant to encourage. From verse 2, whose you are. First, who you are. Secondly, now, whose you are. Look at verse 1 again.
Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Whose are you? You are God's. God the Father's, God the Spirit's, God the Son's. I love here how the whole Trinity shows up taking a part in your choosing. And here Peter is continuing to support the faith of his readers by showing the entire Godhead active in their status as elect exiles. There are three phases, phrases in verse 2, each phrase highlighting a different member of the Trinity. And each of these three phrases, as the ESV understands, is modifying not just the word chosen or elect. The word chosen here in your Bible, it's actually an adjective that modifies the word exiles. The NASB and the New King James move the word chosen to the end for emphasis, which is fine, but verse 2 is actually modifying our entire identity, not just as elect, but as elect exiles. So in other words, for example, it's not just that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It's that we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Make sense? And so it is with all verse 2. All of verse 2 is hanging off of our identity, not just as elect, but as elect exiles. Like I said, there are three phrases here, and these indicate the origin, means, and goal of our identity as elect exiles, each highlighting a different member of the Trinity. So let's let's get into these now. Let's go through these three phases, phrases in verse 2, finding out what each, what each of them means. Number one, first, you are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's our first phrase. You are elect exiles Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This word foreknowledge in the Greek is prognosis. You've probably heard the word. Doctors still use it today. When they tell you what's wrong with you, that's the diagnosis. When they tell you what's going to happen next, that's the prognosis. Your fate has been determined by a disease, for example. And so your prognosis is what's going to happen to you as a result. Now, this word foreknowledge, biblically, it does not communicate having knowledge in advance. Rather, it communicates having God's favor in advance. Biblically, foreknowledge and predestination are two sides of the same coin. When God foreknows someone, it does not mean that he looks forward into the future, finds out who will choose him, and then chooses them in response. Instead, it means that he has, in the past, already expressed his intention to bless, which goes hand in hand with his predestination. Now, like I said, I know some of you you may not be satisfied with that short explanation. You have questions about foreknowledge, and I'll tell you, we're going to talk a lot about foreknowledge next week. So again, you've got to come back next week. For now, I want to stay on track with Peter's message, which, once again, 
He's not geared towards teaching theology here. He's not providing instruction or elaboration. But again, this is meant to encourage. He brings us up again to encourage. What is he saying? He's saying that you belong to God and the Father has known you before the world began. You have been known by the Father before the world began. Hand in hand with God's election or choosing of you, he knew you in advance. And that's relational language. He knew you in advance. In the counsel of his will in eternity past, he declared his intention to bless you and to bring you to himself. Of all people, you. That's amazing. Remember when you were a kid playing team sports, you had two team captains choosing teams. If you were picked first, it would make you feel special and important. If you were picked last, it would make you feel terrible and unimportant. Some people smiling, some people frowning here. Here's the thing. God did not pick us last, and God did not pick us first. He picked us long before the game even began. He foreknew and selected us long before the world began. Again, there's no room for boasting here. We are important to God only because he made us important to himself. But there is room here for encouragement. God knew we would be his, and he knew we would experience suffering. He knew that. He knew and planned for us not just to be elect, but to be elect exiles. And with that comes suffering first. But he is our father. I love that term. He is our father in heaven. And it's according to a plan being worked out by an infinitely wise and infinitely good God. And we can rest assured in that. You can take confidence that the father is working it out. You may not understand everything, but you can take joy and comfort in the fact that we are who we are, elect exiles, by the foreknowledge, the advanced planning of God the Father. You are elect exiles by the foreknowledge of God the Father. Secondly now, second phrase in verse 2, do you see it? You are elect exiles by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. You are elect exiles by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So we add some more here. He's saying we're elect exiles by means of God the Spirit. God does not simply sit back choose us from afar. He's not like the military general who doesn't see any action. Rather, God gets directly involved and God the Spirit makes us alive and applies salvation to us. To sanctify means to set apart unto God. Whenever a couple gets married, they always register for one special thing, usually fine china. It's the most expensive thing on the registry, usually ends up getting used the least. But what's so special about it? Well, you could say that their china is sanctified. It's not ordinary. It's set apart for special use or for special occasions. And that's like biblical sanctification. Through the work of the Spirit at salvation, we are sanctified. We are set apart away from sin and unto God for his special use. We're made special. 
This work of sanctification happens at salvation, where positionally the Spirit sets you apart unto God for his special use and makes you holy. But there's also a progressive side to sanctification, whereby in practice the Spirit works in you to make you holier each and every day. But what we're seeing here is God getting involved in our lives and making good on his promise to bless us. He has chosen us. We are elect. But we're still in the world. We're exiles. But through the means of the Spirit, far from abandoning us or forgetting us, God has given us himself to make us more like him, to make us less like the world, to sanctify us. And that work of the Spirit is encouraging. It's encouraging that Ephesians describes it as a down payment. It's an encouraging reminder of our future glory. Turn over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'll show you just one verse here. Or have you turned to just one? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I'll show you why this work of the Spirit is encouraging. It's because what it does for us. First Corinthians chapter six. Look at verse nine. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Not going to make it. People who live like that in their rebellion against God, apart from faith. But, verse 11, such were some of you. It doesn't say such are some of you. It says such were some of you. You're not that way anymore. You've been rescued from this futile way of life, as Peter will describe. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. That's what it is. That's encouraging that God has done this for us, that he has rescued us from this way of life and given us the down payment of the spirit to sanctify us. I'll just read this for you. You don't have to turn there. Second Thessalonians 2.13 But we should always give thanks to God for you Brethren, beloved by the Lord, because, get this, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And there it is. It's right there. We've been chosen from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. It's a mouthful, but that's exactly what Peter is saying. You can turn back to 1 Peter. It's amazing. No trial, no tribulation is going to get in the way of this. And to the contrary, God is using trials and tribulations to advance that sanctification. True believers in Christ should get excited and be thankful over the truth that they have been foreknown by God the Father, chosen in advance, and, secondly, sanctified by the Spirit, set apart unto him. God has given you the Spirit to set you apart, and he's not going to forget about you there. He's set you apart unto himself, and you're in a special place. That God's choosing true believers 
are God's fine china. And they are always precious in his sight. Secondly, you are elect exiles by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Finish it up now. Number three, you are elect exiles to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. That's number three. You are elect exiles to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. This is now talking about the goal of your identity as elect exiles. You have been made elect exiles, as the the ESV puts it, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. First here, Peter brings up obedience, and that's really his favorite term for salvation, for referring to salvation. He uses a couple times being born again or being saved, but most of the time he uses obedience as a synonym for salvation. Look down at chapter 1, verse 14. Synonymous with your salvation is your obedience to Christ. Verse 14, he says, As obedient children, a.k.a. as believers, do not be conformed to the form of lusts which were yours in ignorance. Or again, verse 22, chapter 1. Since you have in obedience to the truth, also known as salvation, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. But the point is, his favorite synonym for our salvation is our obedience. So what Peter is saying back here in verse 2 is that your identity as elect exiles is geared towards your obeying Christ and salvation. At salvation, you're not just believing in Jesus as Savior. You're also obeying him as Lord. Not talking about works, but it is talking about obeying Christ as Lord. You are called to obey. You are called to do what is right during your time of sojourning on earth. And really, that's going to be, as we'll see, a major theme in 1 Peter. He's going to show us how to practically live out obedience in this world. But Peter also adds another phrase here in verse 2. He says also, and be sprinkled with his blood. Now, you might think that sounds a little gory, a little gross. Like, I don't really want to be sprinkled by someone's blood, but... Peter is actually drawing off of Old Testament imagery, which he does all throughout 1 Peter. And I have to have you turn back to Exodus 24. Got to go back there, so turn with me to Exodus 24. Show you this firsthand. Exodus 24, we'll start at verse 3. This is right after the Ten Commandments. God has given them through Moses to the people. He has given some terms of this covenant that he's going to set up, this Mosaic covenant. And we pick it up at verse 3. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Verse 6, Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar 
Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And so before time began, here's what's happening. God had chosen this people to be his own. But what we see here is God making it a reality. Now it's happening. He's choosing them. He's entering into a covenant with them, which expresses God's intention to bless. And so the people respond. And what's their response? It's obedience. They say, all that the Lord has said, we will do. They profess their faith and obedience in the Lord. And so the response to that is what? It's blood. They are sprinkled with blood. What's the blood signify? Well, for one, it's sealing the deal. It's a very common custom back then to seal a treaty with blood. God was entering into this binding agreement with his people to be their God and his people, and this was to be sealed in blood. But the blood also serves as God's provision for the people. See, God knew the people, they could not obey him perfectly. They could not follow him perfectly. They were sinners in need of forgiveness and reconciliation. So he provided the blood for them to cover their sins, enabling them to follow him. However, in the Old Testament, the blood of animals was only sufficient to cover sins, not pay for sins. That's why Christ came in the likeness of men to actually pay for our sins by shedding his blood on the cross. And in doing so, he initiated a new covenant through his blood whereby we may be made right with God and able to follow and obey him. And so back to First Peter, again, what he's saying is that your identity as elect exiles was brought about so that you can obey Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, be initiated into this new covenant. And the point is, you want that. That's the, how you boil that all down. You want this. You should want this. It may sound a bit gory, but you want the blood to avail for you. For that is the only way to be clean before God. Only those who bathe in the blood, so to speak, come out clean. First John 1.7 But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. So there we have it. First couple of verses. Like I said, Peter, he provides us with more than just your typical introduction to his letter. He already carefully selects words to provide encouragement to those who are weary. One commentator named McClay gives an excellent summary of these two verses. And pay attention to this. Because what we find in these two verses is really a preview of all of 1 Peter. This is how it is. Through the work of God the Trinity, believers have been chosen to live as exiles in this world until they reached until they reached their promised inheritance. This is who they are, God's chosen people. This is where they live as exiles in a hostile world. This is how they live 
by obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. And within God's sovereignty, eternal purposes, that are they are certainly not forgotten. They are a very special people, belonging to God, Father, Spirit, and Son. End quote. If you've come here this morning feeling forgotten by God, feeling abandoned, feeling marginalized, then you can take encouragement already. These believers to whom Peter was writing, they may have lived on the outskirts of the Roman Empire, but they were certainly not on the outskirts of God's plan. To the contrary, they were center stage. And the same is true for all who call Jesus Lord. You are at the center of his plan by his choosing. The story of redemption highlights you, of course, in subservience to Christ. When difficult times come, you get into trouble when you focus on how you think about yourself or how the world thinks of you. Instead, you need to be thinking about how God thinks of you, how God views you. That's how you get real encouragement. How does God see me? Who are you? You are elect exiles. Whose are you? You are God's. God himself has carefully chosen you and brought you into relationship with himself. And there's no accident. It was the result of some serious long-term planning. And even your present circumstances and suffering are no accident to God. He has good purposes for you. Glory awaits you. But the cross comes before the crown. So for now, cling on to your identity as God's elect exiles. And let it be a great encouragement to you to hang on, endure, persevere, and look forward to the glory that is to follow. Let your understanding of your identity inform how you process difficult times in life and remind you that nothing can get in the way of God's intention to bless you and bring you to glory. Nothing. Nothing can stop God's plan and his choosing of you to carry you through difficult times and bring you to himself. I'll close by reading Romans 8, verse 33. He says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? And then he says, Who will separate us from the love of God? What's going to separate us? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword sum that up? Will suffering separate us from God's love? He answers in verse 37, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Our precious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your promise that you have chosen us who call upon Christ as Lord. You have determined our identity as elect exiles and that you will not leave us abandoned. You will not leave us as exiles forever in this place where we do not belong. You have saved us by your Spirit through Christ. You have transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your Son. Yet here we are still for a time in this world. You will come back for us. You will rescue us. But for now, you want us to live in obedience to the Son. 
living as light in the world, so help us to do that. For now, though, Lord, we take encouragement from what we have seen, even in these opening words, these simple words, encouragement in our identity as elect exiles, encouragement in our possession that we belong to you, and none can escape the Father's good hand. All whom you choose, you will bring to yourself. And so I pray for those here who may be going through a difficult time. They would find encouragement to this, that they would hang on to you, take encouragement in your plan and your choosing, and endure the difficult times. For glory awaits all those who know Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.